Amen. Please be seated. At this time, children uh, ages three to five are invited to participate in children's church if they'd like to do that, and they will return uh, during the last song of the worship service. Uh, my name is Stu Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we've been working through the I Am Sayings of Jesus, and we are in the sixth of seven sayings. We'll get the seventh on Good Friday night. And uh, if you're familiar with today's passage, uh, at least the very first part of the passage, it's probably because you've heard it at a funeral. Uh, it answers the uh, question that has been simmering in the series from the beginning. And uh, as Jesus describes himself in a variety of ways, and then today we get, uh, again, one of his sayings, the sixth of these sayings, which is either uh, deeply offensive or richly comforting. Let's look at this today, John 14, verses 1 to 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. John 14, beginning in verse 1 to verse 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and, have, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will, be, uh, will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. Heavenly Father, we take up this, your word. We pray you'd speak to our hearts. Help us to hear your voice and to respond in faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, I live on an acreage not far from here. A lot of different ways to get there. You could come from the east, the, the south, uh, the west, the north. A lot of different ways. Um, but if you ask me for directions, and I said, you know, just keep driving around, eventually you'll find it, you would probably be dissatisfied and uh, say, well, can't you help a little bit more than that, right? In fact, you might be a bit irritated with me if I said, oh, just keep driving, eventually you'll bump into it, right? It would be even worse if I lived, as I think some of you probably do, on a cul-de-sac, at least if you circled around Lincoln long enough, you might bump into my house. But with a cul-de-sac, right, if you're at the end of a cul-de-sac, there's only one way that's going to eventually get you there. Uh, you can get close, but if you're going to finally get there, you're going to have to get on the one path that will take you to the house, right? Um, 
That's exactly what Jesus is talking about today. The fact that the Father has a house, and he goes to prepare a place for us in that house, and there is only one way to get to the house. Only one. We are headed toward a cul-de-sac. Only one path. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in this sixth of the seven sayings. So as we've done in the past, we want to get the setting of the saying we want to get the sense of what this is saying is about, and then we'll look at some of the significance that Jesus points out in these uh, latter verses. But let's start with the setting. Now, each week as we've been going through this, I've been saying some version of, boy, this word today, if you did a word study from the Bible, you'd see from beginning to end all kinds of this theme all the way through the Bible. And, uh, and so far, that's, that's really true. I mean, the, the bread, wonderful word study, light, shepherd, resurrection, even as it turns out, and I, I was a little bit skeptical at first, but when you think about it, even the gate and the door, there are some pretty rich Bible word studies you can do from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Not this week. There's no word study. There is no place else in the Bible where these words are bundled together. Uh, now, you could do them separately, I suppose, and come up with you know, a study on the way and a study on the truth and a study on the life, which are very broad concepts, but not together the way Jesus says them. No other place. And this sixth of the seven sayings seems to kind of bring together everything that Jesus has been teaching all along, almost all of it into one saying. This is a different kind of saying. And so because there is no broader biblical setting, we want to take time to think about the, the setting well within the Gospel of John. And uh, John, uh, again, uniquely says things ab about Jesus, things you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the Gospel begins with a very explicit claim about Jesus, very famous, these first three verses in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. That's a very, very exclusive claim about who this, uh, this gospel is about, about Jesus Himself. In fact, we could say it's the boldest of all claims. And it frames the way we see everything in the gospel of John all the rest of the way. It's all framed through these opening words. So as we come through these I am sayings, we can see that Jesus is not only affirming this early teaching, but he, Jesus is doubling down. Jesus is, is telling us in this gospel very clearly about his unique position as the Son of God, one who is one with the Father. Now, as we come to a little bit closer to today's setting, chapter 12... In John's Gospel is where Jesus enters Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, which we've been celebrating. And as he now enters this last week of ministry heading to the cross, Jesus is saying a lot of things to prepare his disciples for what this is going to be like. Uh, and it's not going to be good. Verse 13, 13 in particular, just previous to this chapter, Jesus has been telling his disciples about all of these difficulties, about his impending death and their call to service and his upcoming betrayal. And Peter, generally considered the strongest of all of the disciples, has been warned that he is going to disown Christ three times. 
a lot of difficulties that are on the horizon that they could not imagine. So that frames the opening verse of chapter 14. Uh, no wonder their hearts were troubled. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, trust me. And Jesus begins to explain uh, the, the place of hope that he offers to them and the path to it. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verses 2 to 4 uh, describe this home that the Father has that is large, that is suitable for, for all of us and many, many more. And the, the, this description that's given here, uh, notice in our translation it says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Uh, in the other versions it says many dwelling places. And in the Old King James and the New King James, it, uh, it uses the word mansions. It's not that that isn't a proper word, um, but it kind of gives the wrong idea. And sometimes people think about heaven or their, their final dwelling with God, and it's like, hey, and everybody gets a mansion. Like, that's the great part of it. You know, well, you could have a good house here, but you're going to have a mansion in heaven. And so that word, it's not completely inaccurate. It, it's, it's a reasonable translation, but it sends, especially for us as Americans, the wrong idea. Okay, now think about it. In your final home, is that what you're excited about? You get a cool place to live? No, that's not, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is in, in what he's describing here is this is it's the Father's house and there are many rooms. This is the emphasis. There's room for you. There's room for all the people God wants to bring into his kingdom to bring into his house. There's plenty of room. That's the idea. Not that you get some kind of a special place to live. And Jesus says specifically, I'm going now to make preparations uh, for you, my disciples, and by extension, for all of us. That's his Jesus' current work. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, ruling and reigning from heaven, and preparing for that day when we will dwell together with our God. Jesus promises, he says, I'm going to return, I'm going to take you to be with me. And that's what they want. I hope that's what you want. Streets of gold, pearly gates, mansions, who cares? It's to be dwelling with your master. It's to live in the presence of your God. That's what we're yearning for. And uh, he alludes again uh, to his second coming being the time frame in which this will happen. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for that final home, um, well, we're supposed to be a little bit homesick. We're supposed to be yearning for that and never quite satisfied here and now. Um, do you have that feeling? Is there a place here on earth, I was asking somebody this week, is there a place here on earth which is as close as home as, as you think you'll ever find um, on this earth? I bet for all of you there's some kind of a place where your, your heart radar says that's home. My Uncle Bob um, lived the vast majority of his life in, in Pueblo, Colorado, or as they say it out there, Pueblo. And uh, in Pueblo, Colorado, and uh, he had a request that when he died, he did not want to be buried in Colorado. He wanted to be buried in Firth, Nebraska, where he grew up. 
That was where his heart radar said his home, even though he hadn't lived there in decades. Decades. Where is home? It's interesting that his wife, who lived her whole life in Colorado, never even lived more than just a short period of time in Nebraska, she decided that when, whenever she passes, she'll be buried in Firth as well because her heart radar isn't anchored to a place, it's anchored to her husband. Hmm. Where is your heart anchored? Well, wherever that place is, I, what, what we're trying to understand here is that there is still going to be a kind of homesickness. We're not quite there. We're not quite where we're supposed to be. We're waiting for where our heart knows is our true home. And Jesus is preparing that for us. So that's the setting. And then we get the saying, and we want to understand the sense of the saying. And now that he's described this beautiful place, Jesus says, okay, how do we get there? How do we get there? And that, that is the, the sense and summary of what this is about. This, it's this I am saying, again, it shows something of all the other sayings, and yet it kind of bundles them all into one. Because each of the other sayings kind of gives us an, an aspect of the person and work of Jesus. And so we, we learn a little bit about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He's the true bread. He, he gives real nourishment to his people. He's the true good shepherd. He cares for us and lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, he is the true light of the world and the world of darkness. He's the way we know what's really truly true is in the light of Christ and his word. He is the door and the gate. There is no other way. There's only one way into the fold, and he is that way into the fold. And we have seen also that he has not only power in this life, but in the life to come, the power over life and death. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so if you take all these ideas and you put them all into one saying, that's today's saying. If you had to, and by the way, they're not long, they're fairly easy to remember. I hope you memorize them all. But if you only memorized one, this is the one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's your Savior. That's Jesus. You know, every other concept is somehow probably found in this one saying. The 15th century German priest Thomas Akempis has been widely quoted on this passage because uh, it's, it's short. It's not really that hard to understand. And so he can unpack uh, richly what Jesus is saying in just a few sentences. He wrote this, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. Jesus said, I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. The way, the truth, and the life. Now, if we stopped there, it'd be a beautiful, comforting message. But after this wonderful promise of Christ, there is another sentence, a clause, which has caused many to worry and wonder and even sometimes walk away. For Jesus then follows that promise with these words, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, we've heard this already, right? These are exclusive claims Jesus has been making all along. He doesn't say, I am one of the doors. I am the door. Uh, he is not a source of light. He is the light. And now he tells us very bluntly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then into the, those sweet words of promise, he has to add what to the rest of the world is the deepest and most severe of offenses. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has committed the American unpardonable sin of exclusivity. There are not many paths. There is but one. There are not many saviors. There is only one. And it is Jesus. And we understand why the world doesn't like to hear such a message, but sadly it's also a message that often the Christian world doesn't like to hear. What are we exactly saying? Because sometimes we get the sense that we're saying that, that because Christ is the truth, that everything that is not of Christ is by definition uh, a lie. And we need to clarify that a little bit. Is that what we're saying? No, 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 no. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it very well. He said, if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all these religions, even the strangest ones, contain at least some hint of truth. Sure, we'll absolutely concede that. But, he writes, of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. Oh no, now we've said it. Yes, the American cardinal sin of exclusivity. Yes, there is one path, and Jesus is that path. As we think about this, again, we know within the Christian world we don't agree about everything, and that's fine. Christians don't have to agree about everything. We talk about that quite a bit. And we're even going to concede that there are many things that, that could be true or even laudable uh, in, the, in the world of Mormons or Muslims or atheists or even Christians who, who disagree with Jesus in this teaching. There may be many things they say that are true and maybe even helpful as you live your life. But Jesus says uh, there is one path, and he is that path. We need to be as plain as we can possibly be about this. The sin that has separated us from a holy God can only be restored by the one path of Christ. He is that path of restoration, and there is no other. This is the gospel. On that final day, Jesus will be the judge, and uh, sometimes we prematurely judge. It's not our job to judge in, in the sense that Jesus judges. And for all those who on that day think and have trusted and put their faith in a path other than Christ, Christ will be the judge on that day. We simply proclaim the words of life, and we want everyone to know and especially in this community, we want them to know that Jesus, Jesus alone is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life, and that there is no other way, no other way to come to God except through Christ. All right, third thing in the text, the very latter part of it here, we ask the question, okay, but 
great, that's a bold claim, Jesus, but why should, I, why should I believe what you say? In fact, what you say is even still confusing to me. Uh, Philip, uh, in this question, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And it's interesting, uh, several commentators noted that if you think about all the things that the disciples have seen up to this point, and they say, and by the way, if you could just show me one more thing. Oh, okay, think about what they've seen already. They have, they have seen Jesus uh, heal the sick. They've seen uh, Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They have seen Jesus raise the dead. And now in this moment, they say, oh, by the way, one more thing. Could you just show me one more thing? Uh, think about that a little bit. What, what, what kind of disciple comes to Jesus and says, after all that I've seen, just one more thing? Jesus is actually, I think, amazingly patient uh, with Philip here. But if there could be a righteous peevishness to his voice when you read this, I, I don't think that's wrong. I think, I think there is a sense in which Jesus is a little bit, he's had enough. Listen to the words. Have, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip? What is it going to take? You really? You want one more miracle? That'll do it. And so Jesus says, if you want to understand, why should you believe what I tell you? Let me tell you why you should believe. And the first thing he says is that when you, listen, you want to see the Father? How many times do I have to tell you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And Jesus is very plain about this again. He dwells in the Father. The Father dwells in him to see Jesus. And what Jesus does is to see the Father. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus describes himself this way and that he uses this I am statement, then echo all the way back to Exodus where uh, God reveals his name in this way. The, the, this is the identity that Jesus has been promoting all along. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The Father and I are one. And so Jesus just exhorts them, again, look at me. I'm all you need to see. Evaluate the person of Jesus. The second kind of thing we see Jesus appeal to briefly here is he says, look at the, the works that I do. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so he says, look at all that I've done. Believe me because of the words and because of the works. I've given you ample evidence this is the same Jesus, again, who has turned the water into wine, who's healed the sick, he's calmed the wind, he's raised the dead, and they've been witnesses to all of it. And when Jesus was asked, very interesting, Jesus was asked on behalf of John the Baptist, John's disciples come to Jesus, and they're just not sure, are you the one or not? And, and so they ask him on behalf of John, who's in prison at the time, whether uh, you are the Messiah or there's someone else to come. And notice how Jesus answers, Matthew 11 Verse 4, here's my, you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Here's my answer. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Look at what I'm doing. And there's plenty of evidence. You want to see the Father? You've seen me. You want to believe? There are many works which I have done which prove who I am. 
And by the way, this is one of the reasons why in the Gospels, uh, again, when we think about miracles in the Bible, sometimes we think that they're just a miracle around every corner, and that is absolutely not true. When you read the Bible, you need to understand that there are, there are periods of kind of bursts of miracles, and then there are drips of miracles in between. And when Jesus comes, he is being set off as the man of God, and so we see a burst of miracles through Jesus. This is not the experience of every person in, every person in, in the pages of Scripture, not at all. So if you say, well, I haven't seen a lot of miracles in my life, that is the pattern for most of history. There's just a few periods of history where God gives a burst of miracles, and why does he do that? Because he's setting apart his prophet and saying, listen to him whether it's Moses or Elijah or now Jesus, listen to him. And so when we attack the miracles of the Bible, we're attacking the one they bear witness to. And it is a direct attack on the authority of Christ himself. Jesus forms a proof. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at the works which I do, which show who I am. And then he says something that's actually... It's very peculiar and in some ways almost troubling. Uh, he says, truly, truly, verse 12, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Wait a minute, time out. <laughs> well, that seems wrong, right? I mean, how could anybody do greater things than what Jesus has done? Uh, but that's what Jesus says. He says, when I go to the Father and I'm interceding for you, you are going to do greater works than I do. What is that about? Well, when we think about it, again, this is, if, if we had set up the, the plan for history, we'd say, great, Jesus is raised from the dead, he ascends to the throne here and now, and he stays on the earth and does his ministry uh, as uh, the head of the church uh, right here, right now. We would not have it that he ascends to the right hand of the Father and does his work from there. We want him here. But Jesus uh, says, this is the way that I'm going to do things. This is the most effective way. I'm going to intercede at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to send my spirit. And the church, in fact, has done uh, things which Jesus in his earthly ministry did not do. Just a couple of quick examples. Uh, the one from Scripture uh, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and so Jesus has already ascended. And on that day of Pentecost, we're told that 3,000 were converted in one day. There is no record of, of those kinds of numbers being converted through the preaching of Jesus. And yet that becomes regular and routine in the life of the early church. The other thing, I guess, as we think about it over the last uh, 2,000 years... Uh, the worldwide spread of Christianity to every continent. Again, is a powerful, powerful thing which has been accomplished by the arrangement that Jesus, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is going to fill the church, and the church will fill the world. Those who claim the name of Christ today are roughly 2.4 billion on the planet. Now, again... We can only measure the visible church. We can only measure those who say, yes, check the box, I'm a Christian. You say, well, pastor, yeah, wow, those people aren't really Christians. Okay, let's cut it in half. 1.2 billion. Okay, let's cut it by 75%. 1.2 billion. 
500, 600 million. That's a lot of people from 12 disciples who all ran when their Savior was murdered. This is a worldwide movement, growing, constantly growing. And Jesus has done through his people what he did not do in his earthly ministry. This is his plan. And then he says something else here that's kind of troubling. He says, uh, ask anything in my name, verse 14, and he says, I will do it. Now, uh, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that we might ask uh, Jesus for something foolish. And is Jesus saying, whatever you ask, as long as you say, in Jesus' name, then boom, you're going to get it. Is, is Jesus just a genie who grants wishes for us? And I hope we all know that that's not so. That's not true. Uh, what does Jesus mean then? And I, and I believe what Jesus is alluding to is the fact that uh, Jesus, as our mediator, as our Lord, sitting at the right hand of the Father, he has the power to do all his will. He's in the seat of authority. There's nothing that he wants to do that he can't do. And so our task is to not bend Jesus' will to my will so he'll do the things I want him to do. Our task is to bend our will to Jesus' will because Jesus is capable of doing all his will. In fact, he will do all of his will. Is that my prayer life? Is my prayer life somehow trying to bend uh, Jesus' will toward mine? That's a futile prayer life. Is my prayer life designed to help me bend my will to Christ's? That's why he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a different way of thinking about prayer, isn't it? Our prayers are meant to shape our hearts toward the heart of Christ, and the heart of Christ always will prevail. Jesus spoke these words to his disciples less than a week before the cross to anchor them in a hope that extends beyond the grave. And he says to you today, he says, I am preparing a place for you. And he wants you to know there is plenty of room. There's room for you. And he wants you to know that he will come again to take you, body and soul, to be with him. That is your home. And he wants you to know that there is only one way and one truth and one life that you might hold fast, hold fast to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gracious promises that fill the scripture, but there is none more glorious than this, that we might, that we might be fit and able to dwell with you uh, forever in your home. Help us this day to cast aside any other, any other hope we would have, any other path than Christ, and hold fast to him as he holds fast to us. Amen.